Well, uh, happy Easter. We continue to bask in the glory of the empty tomb. The fact that, reason, that Jesus has risen from the dead. Uh, every Sunday, every Lord's Day is a celebration of the resurrection. You know that. We live now in the continuing reality that our Lord is alive and He sits at the right hand of God the Father. And you and I can know Him personally. Amen. Amen. Preach it, brother. <laughs> Let's pray together. Lord, uh, everything is different because of Easter. Lord, we can come to you. That veil in the Holy of Holies was torn from top to bottom, and now the way has been opened to know you intimately, to come before you. And Lord, you have revealed yourself to us in many ways beauty of creation, in the wonder of Your Word, the Scripture that we have, and above all, in the living Word who is Jesus. But be with us now as we read Your Word from the Gospel of John. We pray, Lord, that Your Holy Spirit will fall upon us, that these words might truly come alive. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we come this morning to a post-resurrection appearance of Jesus, uh, Jesus' appearance to Thomas who was not present when uh, the Lord first showed Himself to the, to the disciples. So we read from John chapter 20, verse 24. Actually, we start at verse 19. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After this, after this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with them, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now, Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Amen. Poor Thomas, though he made the greatest confession of faith in the New Testament, he will be forever known as the disciple who doubted. 
Doubting Thomas, we call him and everyone else who seems overly skeptical and disbelieving. But despite his rather poor reputation, I rather like Thomas. He seems awfully human, kind of like me, actually. I think that if I had been absent from the disciples that first time when the risen Jesus appeared to them, I don't know, if I heard secondhand that Jesus was alive and had risen, I'm not sure I would have believed it, actually. For after all, people don't normally come back from the dead. I think maybe I would have thought that maybe the, it was just too good to be true. Well, I'm not sure I'm all alone in this. All of us, to some degree, struggle with our doubts. Isn't there something of the doubting Thomas in each of us? At times, we wonder whether God exists. <laughs> we ask that basic question, is there a God? And is there a God who really cares about us? Can we really believe the Bible? Is the Easter story really true? I mean, was there really an empty tomb and a risen Jesus? Or was it kind of more like kind of a mass hallucination and just kind of like wishful thinking? Or somebody made up the story and it took. It's human to doubt. If you doubt that, you just have to look at some of the great saints of the Bible because almost all the great people of faith were also great doubters. Abraham, the father of faith, doubted God's promise. Moses doubted God's authority. Elijah doubted God's power. Job doubted God's justice and sense of fair play. In fact, all the disciples were great doubters, not just Thomas. I mean, you remember when the women came and they were the first ones to witness the resurrected Jesus. When they came to the disciples, not one of them believed it. <laughs> so Thomas' struggles are our own. Now, this may seem strange to say in a church setting, but doubt can actually be a good thing. That is, if it's an honest sort of doubt that's open to truth. There are two kinds of doubt. On the one hand, there is a kind of doubt that, that springs from a narrow mind and a cold heart. We probably know people who have just dismissed the whole notion of God just right out of hand, right? You know, there is no God. I know it to be true. That settles it. Don't bring up the subject again. I don't want to hear about it. There is no God, period. And with all due respect, so many of these folks pride themselves on their open mind. But actually their minds are as narrow as they come. Or to put it another way, they're so open-minded their brains fall out. I mean, they have ruled out the possibility of God without a serious examination of the claims 
for faith. And this is a big deal because these are matters of life and death, right? But never to have really, just to have dismissed it out of hand? I mean, it's rather foolish, actually. Coldly skeptical and full of cynicism, I think they're just trying to keep God at bay. They just want to keep Him at a distance. They want God to jump through their own hoops of empirical verification, if they stop to think about empirical verification. Woody Allen speaks for a lot of these folks when he says, if God would only speak to me just once, if only He would cough, if only I could just see a miracle, if I could just see a burning bush or the seas part, or my Uncle Sasha pick up the check. <laughs> and the fact is, if God were to perform a great miracle right before our very eyes, uh, you know, their folks would just rationalize it away and talk it all up to coincidence, right? They're close to the possibility of new discoveries in the spiritual realm. They may ask a lot of questions, maybe, but they don't entertain the possibility that there just might be some answers. In fact, the worst sin in their mind is to claim that there is an answer that may be true for everybody. On the other hand, there is an honest intellectual doubt that is not a fixed position, but is open to new discoveries. And I like to think that even though Thomas said he wouldn't believe unless he actually put his hands in the wounds of Jesus, he wanted to believe. He was at least open to the truth. He just wanted to be sure. His was the kind of questioning that seeks to understand and to know the truth. And these sorts of doubts can actually cause faith to be stronger. In fact, if you and I have never doubted our faith, Chances are that faith is very superficial. Uh, a great Swiss psychiatrist by the name of Paul Turnier once said, He who claims never to have doubted does not know what faith is, for faith is forged through doubt. Now, there are many Christians who have simply inherited their faith, you know, it just kind of came to them secondhand, and they've borrowed it, and they've accepted it without question. They've simply taking, taken it over without thinking about it. But you see, in that case, their faith is really not theirs. It's somebody else's. They haven't fought for it. Their faith is no faith. As one student said, being a Christian just because your parents are is like wearing a secondhand hat that doesn't fit. Faith only becomes our own when we've wrestled with it, when we've struggled with some of these issues, even when we've thought about it deeply, and when it has cost us something. I like what the novelist Frederick Buechner says about faith, or actually about doubts. He referred to doubts as the ants in the pants of faith. They keep it awake and moving. Doubts are the ants in the pants of faith. Keep it alive and moving. Why do I feel itchy right now? (laughs) 
So they keep us, you know, the, the doubts, <laughs> at least they keep us moving, right? And searching and seeking and trying to understand and being inquisitive. So the faith we possess is ours, not just secondhand, inherited or borrowed from somebody else. And there is a sense in which we need to be like an inquisitive child who's always asking, you know, every question begins with, why? Why? And actually, the church should be a place where we can air some of our doubts. It should be a place where every question can be asked without fear of put-downs or with charges of heresy. So we all struggle with these issues, some basic issues of faith. But doubts must be fought through. You and I need to work through our doubts and find faith. After the Lord showed doubting Thomas the nail prints in his hands and the wounds in his side, Thomas exclaimed, my Lord and my God. And as I say, it's, it's the, I believe it's the greatest confession of faith in the New Testament. It was not an expression of surprises in my Lord, oh my God, no. It's a theological statement, the climax of John's gospel. Thomas knew that the risen Jesus before him was not only his Lord, but his God. And from then on, no one was more committed to Christ. Tradition has it that Thomas carried the Christian faith to India, all the way to India, where he met a martyr's death. With the Lord's help, Thomas worked his way through his doubts, and his faith was stronger because of it. Someone has rightly said, a Christian is not someone who doesn't doubt, but someone who doubts his doubts more than he doubts his faith. Now, I think of a teenager uh, who was always a believer. She grew up in the church. Uh, you know, her parents were committed Christians. She, you know, attended youth group, you know, every week. And, and uh, you know, it was, just, it was just part of her. The church was kind of at the center of her life. But then all of a sudden, she was um, beset by doubts. All kinds of doubts came to her mind, and it really troubled her. And, you know, you know is there really a God and is Jesus Christ truly the Savior of the world, and does He care about me? And, and uh, you know, she was really troubled with all this. And, uh, you know, because she was such a, a committed churchgoer uh, and, and thought, thought she was a committed Christian, I mean, this, she felt guilty about all of her doubts. And so ashamed of her skepticism, she didn't want to share her doubts with her parents, again, who were committed Christians. But instead, she went to an elderly friend of her mother's. And with great embarrassment, the girl said to her, suddenly, I'm not sure if there really is a God. I'm not sure there is a Christ. And after she talked for a while, the older woman said, why don't you tell me about your doubts? Try to prove your doubts to me. 
So the girl tried to prove there was no God, and after a few sentences, she couldn't think of anything else to say. And as she tried to explain her disbelief, she discovered that it's harder not to believe than it is to believe in God. Trying to prove her doubts enabled her to prove her faith. And when the conversation was over, she was able to say, I do believe. It seems to me that's a pretty good personal strategy if you're dealing with doubts, you're struggling with your doubts. Try talking to yourself, to, to yourself and try to prove your doubts to your own satisfaction. And you just might find that you have talked yourself into faith. I mean, given all the facts, it really is easier to believe in God than not to believe in God. Truly. But in the end, it's all a matter of faith. We cannot prove the existence of God. On the other hand, we cannot disprove it either. In more recent times, some atheistic scientists have been quite outspoken in trying to dispel the whole notion of God. A fellow by the name of Richard Dawkins has written a book called The God Delusion, which is particularly scathing in its condemnation of all religion, which he says is the root of all problems in our world today, just about. And he quite confidently states that science has proved there is no God. But science can do nothing of the kind. Science is concerned about a whole different realm of knowledge, right? It tells us how, but it never can deal with why. The purpose of life. Why is it set up like this? Science cannot disprove God. Scientists like Dawkins are simply sharing their faith. Their worldview that simply begins with the assumption there is no God. It's just as much of a faith as Christians. In, these, in the end, these atheists have to rely on faith. They have chosen to believe that God does not exist. Now, there are many good reasons and rational arguments to believe in God, and we are wise to consider them and think through them. Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God, and his more recent book, Making Sense of God, are very helpful in this regard. I just, I just urge you, you know, just pick up a, other than the Bible, which you should be reading every day, of course, Pick up a, a book that, uh, that deals with some of these issues, that, that the questions of, of faith and of life, and, and, uh, and, you know, do some thinking, do some deep thinking about your faith. Uh, why should we believe? Why can we believe? I mean, is the Bible reliable? What about all these things? Think about it. Pick up a book. Anything by Tim Keller is good. It's a great book. Tim Keller is a Presbyterian minister uh, based in New York City, Redeemer. He's, he's able to talk to all these, you know, these, um, well, 
kind of the intellectual elites of society and is able to make sense to these folks. Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis is a classic work to stimulate our thinking. Uh, sometimes he's kind of hard to read, but uh, as C.S. Lewis demonstrates, Christian faith has much to commend itself when you consider the reliability of its historical foundations, its internal consistency, its rationality, its relevance to human existence, and its ability to transform lives. As human beings, we cannot live without meaning and satisfaction and freedom and identity and justice and hope. And you and I can totally, we can totally commit ourselves to the gospel in full confidence as a powerful, credible, deeply satisfying answer to all these needs. But we will never achieve absolute proof. In the end, we have to make a decision, and yes, we have to make a leap of faith, but this is not a blind leap. This is actually a, a rationally based leap. But it's a leap. But if we take that leap and trust God, then God will catch us, and God will lead us to a true understanding of who He is and what we most need to know about life. The important thing is that we are open to God, open to learn, open to new discoveries, yes, in spite of our doubts. And the good news is that you and I are never left alone in working through our doubts because God has promised to us the Holy Spirit who comes alongside of us and reveals to us the truth we need to know and helps us build the faith we need to have. But what is required is an open attitude on our, on our part. Seek, he says, you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. Ask and it shall be given to you. Now, in working through his doubts, Thomas had a distinct advantage over us. I mean, he could actually put his fingers, you know, in the wounds of the risen Jesus in his body. So that he received the physical evidence that he had longed for. And this was, was, was really an act of mercy on the Lord's part. Obviously, you and I are not able to see Jesus physically, to touch him in that, in that way. But the Spirit of Jesus promises to reveal himself to us in a way that is clear and unmistakable. That is if we are open to His spiritual presence and try to see with the eyes of faith. You know what? We may not have all the answers to our questions. I mean, we're, we're never promised answers to these, all the questions of life, right? We wish we knew everything. I mean, there are so many whys. It's human to ask why. Why do people suffer? Why do people die before their time, before they're old? And why do children have to suffer and... You know, we're not granted answers to all these questions. God does give us whatever we need to know. And in the end, what we have is the presence of Christ. All we have in the end is Him to lean on. In the end, it's the experience of His presence that stills our doubts and makes our way for faith. Blessed are those who have not seen, said Jesus, and yet 
believe. So may each of us begin to doubt our doubts and find the certainty that comes from a personal encounter with the living Lord. Don't doubt it. Believe it. (laughs) To Him be all glory and praise. Amen.